Today, Luke and I are joined by Bryony Doyle. Bryony is a Melbourne-based writer and academic. His debut novel, The Island Will Sink, is the first book published by The Lifted Brow, and will be available from August 2016. Bryony's work has appeared in publications like The Lifted Brow, The Age, Overland, Going Down Swinging, and Mianjin, among others. And she has performed her work at the Sydney Festival and at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Sydney. On today's podcast, we chat about writing with no clothes. Fear not, that's not the topic. In the media section, we chat about The Eagle, Doctor Strange, The Siege of Yadotville, Neon Demon, L, and Hell or High Water. For the topic, we chat about the dystopian setting and how people are tackling it these days. As always, if you have any questions, do contact me on my email, especially now that we have a call-out for questions at mailbox at thepenofjoel.com. Thanks, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Morning Bell Podcast. My name is Joel Martin, and today we're at the Brunswick Street Bookstore, and we are joined by the long-lost brother, uh, Luke. I couldn't think of a better adjective, but... Uh, took a while, eh? Yeah. Yeah. How, how, how are you going, Luke? Why have you not appeared? Why have I not appeared? Oh, gee. I don't remember the last excuses I gave you. Yeah. So like a trip overseas or something. Yeah. But this Malaria one... in Japan. Yeah, you were a bit sick. You had a bit yeah, of I a... Did, I did catch something. It was a bit of a fever or something. Yeah, that, that took me down for the first one. I can't remember what the second one was. Anyways. Um, is, it, is it called Mike-itis when you Mike have problems with a microphone? I do have troubles with a microphone. I'm just fixing it <laughs> like right, right now. now, for instance. Uh, it keeps slipping down. All right. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. Still alive. Still alive? Um, still writing? I am writing now. That's actually come back, mm-hmm. which is great because it's been a long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what, like 5,000 words in half a week, so... Pfft. It's going well. <laughs> Not like some people, maybe, but I'm happy. You're practically all well. I, I mean, I, I don't know how much you wrote, but I'm just, I'm just guessing. Um, here, here's an interesting fact that I picked up, and I might not have... It's not about me, is it? It's, well, it's kind of... Once you say this, it'll be a bit weird. But, like, there's a writer, Alexander Dumas, um, kind of Monte Cristo, okay, it's not Three Musketeers fame. Um, in order to write without distractions, and the reason I was doing this research is for the previous podcast that we did with Stephen Amsterdam, mm. we were talking about burnout and stuff like that. So Alexander Dumas' way of avoiding distractions during writing was to lock himself up in a room that had no, you know, anything pretty much <laughs> uh, to write, and he had no clothes on. So he wouldn't get distracted. I don't generally get distracted by my clothes. Yes. See, that's exactly what I thought. I was like, I'd be more distracted if I'm like, exactly. I have no clothes now. <laughs> really distracted by like the, the, any breeze, anything. Yeah. Like, what? There you go. Alexander Dumas, you're a, you're a strange person. But he wrote pretty good books, that's for sure. Um, tangents aside, we have a guest, as we always do, Brioni Doyle. Hi. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Fantastic to have you. So, what have you been up to in your last week? You said you've been busy. I have been busy. I've been writing, I've been fully clothed, and I've been in a room <laughs> with lots of objects in it. So, who knows how it's going to go for and me. And distracted? Oh, yeah. I mean, like like Luke, I don't really get distracted by my clothes, and I think that, <laughs> I think that nudity would be way more distracting. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, no, I, I get distracted. I don't mind distractions, though. You let them in. It's part of the process. Yeah, I think so. Just not the TV going or something? No, not the TV going. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's where I draw the limit too. Um, 
It's tough. Do you have a thing where you do your whole workspace is different from your living space? I wish. No, I, I used to when I had a living arrangement that allowed it to have mm. an office, have a bedroom and have an office. Um, but I'm in a share house at the moment and my I have a large bedroom and I have like constructed a makeshift wall down the middle to kind of separate an office space. Mm-hmm. And I did recently go into like a bit of a um, crazy obsessive blitz about um, trying to make it so that my, I couldn't see my my desk from my bed yeah which was like you know i moved everything around a number of times so there's just like privacy screens everywhere now <laughs> it's like I a maze wanted, i ended up kind of shoving the bed closer to the wall which kind of says a lot about right. how much the desk dominates the room but then i needed the desk under the window anyway it, you yeah. know there was a lot of problems i moved it all around and then i moved it all back again and yeah <laughs> but i but kept it, my clothes on it made you time. feel better though. yeah there you go no yeah i mean the slight changes now i can see i can't really see my desk from bed it's good. It's good. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Every every writer seems to have their different way of working. I know writers that you know do the traditional go to a coffee shop, um, write. I, I remember do that. doing that once. I did that once because I and I don't mean like while you're at a coffee shop you have a you know you think about something and you write it down in a notebook. I do that a lot, but like I've never gone to a coffee shop in order to write except once and that once was the like just not the a worst good experience session of writing ever. it was the worst <laughs> session i got yeah. absolutely nothing done because it's in a mall or like you're in a you know a coffee shop in the city and there's people going and there's you know horns and it's just there's a clattering of you know cutlery and stuff all around you and people like pushing past you if you're in a starbucks don't write in a starbucks because that's the worst idea um yeah, it just it didn't work for me. I think those people must just not be very aware of themselves in public spaces. <laughs> just and I, I really I I envy wish I them. Had that. I envy yeah. them not just because they can write in coffee shops. I don't know if I'd do that even if I could. But yeah. like the ability to go out in public, especially yeah. a public place where someone has to like wait on you or is like looking at what mm-hmm. you're doing the whole time, and then sit down and be so comfortable that you could like bang out a chapter <laughs> of a novel. That seems like totally insane yeah. to me. I know lots of people do it, but I just it's not my personality yeah. at all. Even yeah. like writing outdoors. Find that tricky. You find that hard? Yeah. I never write. Went to, a, went to a park. It was semi-empty. I just couldn't write. I'm just like, is the office, sky pretty? Had a desk. That's yeah. what it's for. <laughs> I know. I agree. I completely agree. I find that like I I um I also know a few a lot of people that write in the library in the in the state library yeah. where the desks are, and I try that too. And I was like, maybe you know, I try that. See if you know I'll understand what it's on about. Couldn't do it. I honestly don't even, especially don't understand that one. As soon as I'm in the library, I'm like, book, 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 book. Yeah, it's not the distractions <laughs> that get me. It's just, it's just uncomfortable. Like, I it's sit like there. I'm, the I'm going to write. I, really I don't not feel write. like yeah. I'm in my writing comfort zone. You know, it's just, I just don't feel like yeah. writing. Writing to me is like a very private, like personal thing. And then doing it outside is kind of uncomfortable. I do a lot of research outside, but that's for practical reasons mm. of going to a library and picking up books. But... Yeah, I don't do a lot of prose writing mm. outside, weirdly enough. I've written in a library once. I mean, sometimes it gets really hot <laughs> and you got to go true. somewhere, you got to yeah. get something finished. So yeah. I have written in library. But, you know, the library's not always quiet either. Mm. And State Library, there's tourists going through. And yeah. I don't And I get really narky and then I get a bit interested <laughs> in my own narkiness. Like, <laughs> how can you be clopping around so much? Because <laughs> people are working. Who brings a baby to a library? Yeah. You know, and then I get into a little spiral. Yeah. Who sets off a baby, like, event in a library? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. It's tough. All those regular events. All right. So that was us complaining for about five <laughs> minutes, but I'm sure that was an intro and worthy enough for the audience. Um, so at the start of this uh, episode, you would have probably heard me 
um, tell you that we're looking for a uh, opinions. We're looking for people to tell us what you think. Um, I've noticed that with a, especially um, with writing programs or radio broadcasts or anything like that, feedback is just generally quiet. It's like, yeah, you're doing a good thing, but nobody says that. Um, if there's anything you want us to change or that you're interested in, specific guests that you're inspired by during the year, we would love to hear from you. So please, it'll only take a couple minutes of your time, but we know there's quite a few of you listening, so just Chuck out an email, say, Joel, you're terrible, I love Luke, or I love Ian, and I hate you too, and I hate both of you, I hate all three of you, anything like that, like, just whatever it is, vitriol, or, or you know, happy stuff, we're happy with everything, we're actually not, but, you know, it's good too, um, so yes, my email's right at the start, mailbox at thepenofjoel.com, this is probably the only time I'll be saying it during a podcast, because, hey, I want to read your feedback during, uh, during the holidays, so... Do that, and uh, I'll probably remind you at the end of the episode, too. <laughs> For those of you who didn't tune out during this ad. Um, so Now promoting. N- n- <laughs> now promoting my email address. Um, let's move on to the media section and see what we've all been watching and not watching, depending. Yeah, let's start with Brioni, because we will probably end up ranting for a little bit, so... Why don't we start? What have you been watching? Okay. Theater, TV, film? Uh, I've been, I watch really embarrassing TV, so I'll leave that aside. But I, I think everyone see, does. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I went to see um, the new Verhoeven movie, uh, L on ah. Saturday, which yep. was incredible. Mm-hmm. Really, really, totally fantastic. Mm-hmm. I need to actually track down the novel that it's based on, which I don't think is published in Australia yet. But a really incredible movie about um, this like absolutely unembarrassable, unshockable woman who has this like quite um, uh, scandalous past, I suppose, and and a, a kind of a terrible thing happens to her. And the movie is basically various different characters trying to humiliate her and cut her down to size. And she just is not having an incredible mm. performance by Isabel Huppert being this like, she's, I think her acting style is just really fantastic like it mm. just she's so poised and you know at a certain point in the movie my partner like looked over at me he's like I wish I hope this movie never ends and it really is it's like so immersive and her character is so real and you're so there with her everything's really complicated and it's just an excellent film mm. fantastic and that is showing at was that Nova yeah was but I think, Nova? It's at, yeah, I, I think it's at most arty yeah. movie houses yeah, yeah that's true um yeah, it, it was curious. Uh, you mentioned that, and it brought to mind a. I think it's. I think it's coming out. It hasn't come out yet, but it's a Nicholas Winding Ref film or series rather, uh, and that is the Neon Demon. And oh. I yikes! That's a shocker of a movie. Really? Yeah, not good. T- tell me about it. Uh, well, I saw it at the Melbourne Film Festival. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I really love to drive a yeah, lot. Yeah. Um. So. Have you seen his older work, um, Pusher and the yeah, more Danish I stuff? I really liked Pusher too. Yep. Yeah. Um. So I was quite excited yeah. about it, but it was like it was one of those movies. Now, whenever I look at the movies, I like see it there in the um, session times right. and over, and I'm like, at least I don't have to ever see that terrible <laughs> wow. film again. Yeah. It's just kind of. Uh, that's sort of like, it's sort of like he's trying to do a Harmony Korean film, but he's right. just like really, really failing at it. It was just lots just of like fashion models um, and a bit of gore and some, you know, it just, it just really failed. It was incredibly shallow. It didn't really? seem to have much of a point to it. Mm. And like a lot of the tricks, I mean, I think it's a shame because some of his aesthetic that pulled through, um, yeah, it was, it 
fell flat and it kind of, you know, it damaged some of my feelings about oh, the wow. previous movies, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, still, I still always love them, but I did walk out just being like, you know, a bit betrayed and like, you're not who yeah. I thought you were, <laughs> rapping. Um, so, yeah, don't see that movie. Don't okay. see it. Yeah, just don't watch it. There you it. go. Mm. That's sad. That makes me incredibly sad. Yeah, not as sad as you'll be if you see the movie, then you'll be real sad. All right, who knows? Maybe I will give it a miss then. Wow. Interesting. Have you seen anything else? Uh, At the movies? No. Oh, yeah, I went and saw um, the cowboy movie. Gosh, what's that called? Magnificent Seven? No. Um, for se- oh, that's for a second song. Oh, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like the <laughs> um, post-GFC cowboy movie with Jeff Bridges in it. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I'll have to look it up that in movie. a sec. Yeah, that was also excellent. Yeah, really great kind of revamp that. of a like a modern cops and robbers where you're sometimes you're rooting for the robbers while well, you're mostly rooting for the robbers, <laughs> but then sometimes you're actually kind of with the cops, you know, and because they're actually every, like cool characters. Yeah, and everyone's downtrodden, you know, everyone's towing in a line that they can't yeah. deal with, and it's sort mm. of like. It alludes to, or the subtext is about um, kind of political um, disenfranchisement in America. And so, yeah. you know, you can really get behind the characters in that way. So, yeah, it's mm. been a good couple how of was, weeks for me. How movies. was uh, Jeff Bridges' performance in that one? Awesome. Really good? Yeah, really good. All right. Really that, good. That'll be on the watch list for sure. <laughs> um, Luke, let's uh, start off with you. So I'll rather um, second off with you. Second um, off with me. Um, let me start off with one which, which we, we aren't going to talk about for horribly long, yes. I guess. Uh, it was the Siege of Yadatville. I don't know if any of you have seen that. It's new not. on Netflix. It's um, I was super impressed by this mil- film because it was bringing up a or an event from history that has I think largely been overlooked, mm-hmm. and that was a little battle in. Let me just remember. I think it was Congo. Yeah, it's in Congo, and it was during the Cold War, and it was over a little section of Congo which was rich with resources. Now. It was the UN was sent in there to try and um, keep the peace and not let another war, like a huge war, actually happen. So peacekeeping for peacekeeping, yep. And it was, it ended up being a what's the word? A siege. It was a setup. It was a oh, setup, okay. and it was yes, it's of course. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, smart. Sorry. Um, <laughs> the title so, gives it away. So the Irish were brought in for this, mm. and it was a relatively new group. The The movie indicates that it was the first thing they ever did in their entire lives, but they, they had actually done some things in Congo before. Um, they'd never fought a proper battle, mm-hmm. but they were sent out to this little place, which is kind of in the middle of nowhere, and they were told they were going to be protecting some of the locals from savages mm-hmm. um, who were rebelling against something. Mm-hmm. Um, but instead of savages, there were mercenaries who were trying to protect the interests of corporations trying to fund the next war. Mm. And so they held place with very little ammunition, very little in the way of supplies. UN weren't really equipped in Congo for anything and they didn't lose a single man during three days of onslaught from professional mercenaries. And these are all like new people. They've, they've only been like one little skirmish before. Mm. So, and then afterwards, it was erased from memory of everyone. It was kind of like, it was a lot like the um, Vietnam War. It was kind of like they were disgraced. They were sent off to the side because 
uh, in the end, they had to surrender. They couldn't win. I mean, still none of them died, but they, they couldn't win. So um, that was... No, five were wounded. Five men were wounded, but no one died. Absolutely none. Mm-hmm. So I I was extremely impressed. I, of course, went off to read the history because that was yeah. quite fascinating. It's like it's like looking at the the three hundred from Sparta, right? It's Except like the whole this was three hundred. It wasn't like you know yeah. three hundred Spartans and you know however many Greeks who were with them. Yeah, it was three hundred <laughs> men. Yeah, and then none of them died. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was fascinating. It was actually, um, and they just recently received honors. It was like two thousand sixteen. They got honored for their right. Okay, for their um, hmm. for their contribution. So that Curious. was that was fascinating. It was very, a, it was a well done film. It was a little too actiony, but it was okay. Yeah, I mean I don't mind action, but. I thought it was a little over-dramatized just, and unrealistic in yeah, some spots. Yeah, what would the accents like? Because when you said Irish, I was like, I hope they hired... They were, they they were w- good. They were they actually was, Irish yep. actors? Yep. Okay. So yep. I hope so. No, it was good. It was <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> I've seen too many films with like an Irish accent. What do you think it is? And I'm like, oh, <laughs> no, don't do that. Please. But yeah, I saw that they were Irish and I was like, I really hope they pick good actors for this. Did but good. Did good. Fantastic. All right. Well, I'll probably... I probably will check that out at some stage but uh anything anything else uh i did see the eagle which was based off the rosemary sutcliffe novel yes and you did tell me it was old before 2011 before podcast yes. but i didn't realize it <laughs> i hadn't seen it before what did you think uh i can't remember if i have any notes on it but i just remember it i did i'd well, from watching it i remember it was it was lacking something mm. it was it's like i really love the book it was fantastic. I love the the story of searching through uh, the north of north of Britain for for this um, standard. standard. Yeah, but I don't know. It felt like they went to Eskimo land instead of mm. just wandering the steppes of Britain mm. or the the marshes or whatever you want to call it. And I don't. I didn't didn't um didn't follow it as as easily as I followed the book. Mm. It was more about the more about the psychological effects on the characters i think mm-hmm. than about the story itself and about the countryside because i remember during the the um in in the book there was a lot of description of how the country was like and they would, yeah. they would visit different villages and and it was fascinating to see yeah. all the different villages there there's definitely a reason why a lot of uh historical reenactments use Sutcliffe as a uh as the source, basically, mm. because she she goes real detailed into mm. um, into the landscape, and I think like um, R- Romano Britain was like really well done in terms of how she wrote it and the way mm. she described, it. and that's kind of one of the reasons that people remember her writing. Um, the film I I enjoy. I've, I've I've seen this a while back, so I'm only recalling um, you know what I thought about it at the time. I haven't mm. seen it anytime soon. Um, but I, I enjoyed the film for what it was worth. I thought that uh, it was a better, it was a good depiction of um, that sort of Roman frontier world. I like yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, and hell, I just don't think there's a lot of uh, historical, um, especially set within that late Roman period, that is done very much because you know it's. Kind of, yeah. A, if like, it was standing by itself, you're, you're pitching yeah. it to a very specific audience. Basically, <laughs> the the point is why it doesn't sell. If very it was well. standing by itself, I'd say it was a decent film. But because based it's on the based adaptation, on the book, it's a little bit didn't un, hold up. Yeah, not as well as it could have. Yeah. Right. 
so uh, now we get to the stage where we put a giant spoiler warning for everybody that cares about spoilers for Doctor Strange because we've both seen it and I hope we don't take up too much time but we're going to talk about it this is our little essay on, on what we thought about this movie um, so you started off Luke you went and saw the film I went what and did saw you the think? film and I was disappointed yep um, tell me about it oh, let's, let's try and um, put it as chronologically as possible so first off you start off with this character who's a great actor Benedict Cumberbatch great actor um, but for some reason, now I don't know if this is based on lore from Doctor Strange comics or anything, but he's he's trying to pull off a British accent, which doesn't seem necessary, and he almost wait, wait, pulls sorry. off pull off a British accent or American accent. American accent. Oh, Does you said British. Does okay. British? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> pull, pull off his own accent, accent would be odd. Yeah. And he almost pulls off a Canadian accent, mm. but doesn't really hit either of them. But I didn't see why that was necessary. So it was kind of just subduing a great actor. Um, plus, I I just felt like a lot of the the emotions in the film were forced for him as well. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if this I'm not sure he was like not comfortable with the mm-hmm. movie or not. I mean, he did fine as an actor, but I just felt that it was subdued sure. and messed up. Plot. I mean, I've been expecting great things since I saw Iron Man and the the whole trilogy there, but I haven't seen anything great since Iron Man. So <laughs> I thought surely Marvel can put up something better. But plot was simplistic, didn't really have anything unique or that interesting in it. Um, there, so a number of things on plot, really. Um, I also found that the, the, the main bad guys there were given like w- weeks or months of things to do anything and didn't do anything mm. for that entire period. So they like, kind of like went to sleep until everything else <laughs> until happened. Until the hero arrived. Until the hero arrived. So I was like, okay, that's, yeah. that's already a bit weird. Um, the enemy's a giant astral creature thing, has no real basis or reason or anything. It's not really aiming for anything except to eat stuff. And, it's and the then, blob. Yeah, it's like, it's like the blob, it is. It's, yeah. And then Strange's deal with it gives no real protection to the galaxy anyway. She's like, don't touch Earth. Okay, that's cool. What about the sun? Sun's gone, Earth's dead. Yeah. Um, and it doesn't really you know, stop it from, from doing anything. So that was a nice little logic hole. Uh, there's a nice big illogical ult- ultimatum at the end or near the end where um, the mentor for St- for Strange's character is like, oh, for Strange's character, Strange is is like, well, you can heal yourself or you can have magic. And you think if you got magic, you could do both. You could, you know, you could be, you could do all these things. You don't have to like have one or the other. Didn't explain it either way. So a <laughs> uh, presentation of the whole film, I was like, okay. Uh, it was all Inception effects. I thought that's okay, but mostly it didn't have any impact on the story or the plot, and it was mostly hard to follow with the eyes. So I thought, okay, well. That another thing that could have could have done better. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was supposed to be humorous, mm-hmm. and there were two scenes, maybe three scenes that were humorous, and two of them were silent, so it's going Charlie Chaplin, and it was all to do with the cape. I thought, well, that's great, but you don't need to use two scenes that are silent to carry the entire humor of the film. So they chucked in a final one, which is just him repeating a phrase about 20 times. And uh, when he's trying to make a deal with this creature at the, the end. The blob. But it, but it really didn't... Like, he's good with words, so I don't know why they didn't put more more verbal... I hate to use verbal, but mm. uh, more oral 
um, humor in there. But that's <laughs> my take on it. <laughs> yep. See, yeah, more oral humor. That's what it means. <laughs> that's worked. Stuff was You cut. made me laugh. You should have done that. I was like, just, 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 just let just it move go. Move on. Just move on. All right. Okay, it worked. <laughs> no, he didn't have any. Oh, well. Okay. Right. Joel, your turn. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, so... Doctor Strange, uh, disclaimers, uh, I read the comics, I was a big, you know, uh, nerd for this kind of stuff, I always have been, I really enjoy, specifically Doctor Strange in the Marvel Universe was something that I really enjoyed, because I like that whole Eastern mysticism, uh, mixed with like a superhero style character, and I like the fact that Strange as a character in the comics, um, that, that spirituality was his identity, and I really enjoyed that, um, when they said they were going to make a Marvel movie out of it, I had mixed responses because they have done good stuff in the past, uh, but it usually revolves around uh, the origin story being fairly predictable and, and we kind of understand what's going to happen. Uh, and the thing that I found that I really enjoyed Doctor Strange uh, was in the movie, that is, is because even though the story was predictable, I felt that the style in which it presented itself and the way that it was faithful to the character... Um, was good enough to to keep me invested. Um, Benedict Cumberbatch, like you said, put, putting that American accent bugged me for the first ten minutes, and then I sort of ignored that for the rest of the movie, and it didn't really come up for me again. It almost felt like he slipped into his semi-British accent. Yeah, I I, I think we just I think we just accepted it to a certain point. Um, and for me, I think. Doctor Strange as a character has a lot to do with the visual aspect. In the comics, um, uh, Steve Ditko was the artist, and his art art was like really trippy, very psychedelic kind of stuff. And that's, to me anyway, translated in this movie um, with these different set pieces. You know, not all of them use the same effects. There was the reverse time where characters still functioned and was um, basically thinking during it, so they understood the fact that time was going back. Um, it, that, that was a really interesting visual for me, the whole collapsing city thing we've seen before in Inception, but I still think was done quite well here. Um, you had the mirror dimension and the idea that the multiverse is a thing. And like all these concepts are very weird concepts to put into, you know, a 180 minute movie and be like, we explain all of this stuff and the audience is meant to get all of minutes. this. Eight, maybe 80 120 minutes. 120 minutes. 120 minutes. <laughs> yeah. One of those, um, within a standing, standard movie <clears> month anyway. Um, and there's there's a lot of like complex concepts that they brushed over for time reasons. But to me, it was the performances that got it. I thought Tilda Swinton, specifically in the film, um, I thought she, she was great. I thought that her performance from start to finish was fantastic. I think she's a fantastic actress and uh, probably outshone Benedict Cumberbatch in this movie, uh, in my opinion. Mm. Um, the villain, as Marvel has demonstrated in the past, the villain's a weak, simply because if you think about the great superhero villains or just villains in general in media the only reason we care about a villain or we understand a villain or hate a villain to the point of him becoming or him or her becoming iconic is the time that is spent uh, maturing this villain if you look at the joker in dark knight um half the movie was him like he had such an impact on that movie that that's why we remember him for marvel movies especially origin films they're all about the hero's journey the villain is nothing more than a force of antagonism. And characterizing someone like that is, I think, very difficult. And even though they picked a fantastic actor, Mass Mikkelsen, one of my favorite Danish actors, it's weird to see him in Hollywood movies, but like picking him and having him in this role was heartbreaking because we didn't get to see more of him. 
And in, to a certain extent, he did get sidelined towards the end of the film, which was sad. And yet I think it's necessary for the development of Strange's character in the movie. Could they have done it better? Sure. But I think, uh, especially for people who are fans of the universe and of that style, I think it, it did exactly what they wanted it to. And it looks like the ratings are, are doing quite well for it. Um, curiously, here's some stats uh, to round it off. Uh, Ant-Man was 81% on Rotten Tomatoes. Ultron 75%, Winter Soldier 89%, Iron Man 3 79%, and Strange is 90% fresh. Like, there is, I think, all these stories I just mentioned have very similar hero's journey plot structure to it. The thing that changes is the setting and the characters that we put in the mix. But, hey, I thought, I thought Strange was good, so there we go. Contrasting opinions, who will win? We let the audience decide. Uh, but let's... Um, move swiftly on unless of course Brioni has anything to add to the idea I, I haven't seen it but you know what I love Tilda so yes and I love Mads Sounds yeah great. Mads is so good oh goodness we mentioned Nicholas and my first one of my first experiences seeing him was in Pusher um and he was such a strange weird character and uh yeah I I want to see him in in more roles where he's more than just a a face more of a character but um yeah any ideas on the Marvel Universe? Do you think it's not your style? Why don't you like it? Do you like it? If so, why do you like it? I, I don't know. I, don't, I used to have some feelings about this, and now I you don't. don't. <laughs> Just, the feelings have been bled out over the years? Yeah, I think so. I think mm-hmm. so. Like, I think like when comic book movies first started to be like quite prevalent, I was, I was on board, and then I was quite over it. Yeah. yeah it seemed to <laughs> saturate, quickly, yeah. and they seemed to get worse and worse, and yeah. seemed to be... Yeah, just less and less interesting texts, and I just mm. got over it. Mm-hmm. Curious. There you go. Well, it's not an opinion that is very unusual. In fact, I think the saturation of the movie universe with just every superhero imaginable at this stage is getting old for a lot of people. But, um, hey, they haven't had the Haiti, so the people like it. They've, they've got their pick, I think. Um, so let's move on uh, to the topic for today, and it's talking about dystopian settings and the idea that dystopia in recent years and even though it's a very weird thing to say it's becoming more popular because hell dystopian novels have novels have always been popular um i think it's just prevalent within i guess popular media because recently we've had settings that involve it such as um the hunger games and you you know the stuff in film like uh, divergent series which i believe are books and then um and then films, so it's it's just becoming more the norm, I suppose. And uh, even though I haven't seen those films or read the books very much, it's it's becoming a thing that's interesting to look at. Now it's curious because um, I think the reason why a lot of settings are popular, especially within the YA audience, is because one they're dealing with the drama and hormones, and so the idea that uh, that's why I think medieval fiction is very medieval fantasy is very popular is because it gives you simple. Um, concepts of morality that you can get behind when the real world is very complex. Uh, in the same way, we look at uh, dystopian universes and we look at the world, which is an antagonistic force against us. And so that's very, um, very, I guess, cathartic. But beyond the YA audience, um, dystopia has had a rich history with books such as 1984 and one of my personal uh, favorites, The Handmaid's Tale. It's a curious universe and the attraction to it, I think is an interesting topic. So 
We got Brioni on. Her new book, The uh, Island Will Sink, was just released. Um, and I guess who better to talk about the dystopian <laughs> setting than someone who's been writing in it for a little while. So uh, so give us your thoughts. What drew you into that setting and what do you think about it? It's a broad question. but That's a really super broad question. Yeah, take all the time you need. Um, okay, so I guess like I always knew that this book would be a dystopian novel mm-hmm. um, and I think that the attraction or the attraction of dystopia for me, I can't really speak for other writers, but the attraction for me was that um, in a dystopian setting you exaggerate things that are um, that you see as being negative about mm-hmm. your social world mm. um, and you exaggerate them to a certain point so that you can critique them in a, in a really um, direct sort of way. Um, so that's the attraction of dystopian uh, novels. And I think that that's, a dis- that's I, th- I see that in like classic dystopian texts like Fahrenheit 451 and Brave New World and things like that. Like they're obviously critiquing specific things about that particular time that the writer was working mm-hmm. in and they're critiquing them by exaggerating them so much that we can all see the thing that's wrong with it. And also kind of almost... Um, sort of prophesying a, a doom situation of if this trend continues, then this is this is what you've got to look forward to. I suppose in my novel, like, it's a little bit more subtle, I think, than some of those. So I, I, I did exaggerate a few different things. So the main things were like um, climate change, uh, uh, networked communication. Um, there's immersive filmmaking in the novel as well. Um, but it's not so or I hope that it's not so moralizing as they tend to be. Um, so a few things that I did in order to kind of make that happen was to withhold the like final apocalyptic moment um, where, you know, like in a traditional dystopia or in a lot of traditional science fiction novels, it'll be like apocalyptic moment. And then now we all build from scratch with what all the things that we've learned, you know, yeah. like that's kind of the yep. fable, which I think yeah. is like, I don't know, was not what I wanted to do. So I, I didn't do that. Um, yeah. Um, it's interesting you mentioned moralizing because that was actually one of my points. Uh, is that where do you draw the line between what you think is um, moralizing or what you personally believe and then the setting of the novel? Do you think like divorcing your opinions? And this is the thing that it's not just, you know, restricted to dystopian fiction. It's, you know, uh, our personal belief interacting with our artistic expression um, within the dystopian setting, which is inherently a thing that is talking about, like you said, the fears and what we think might happen in the future of our setting. You know, do you think that that's a problem because it's so deeply connected with yeah. how we feel? Well, I don't think it's a problem. I mean, I don't think that moralizing in novels is a problem. Either someone's going to, yeah. yeah, either someone's going to, the reader's going to be like, I agree, <laughs> you know, or they're going to be like, no, you know, yeah. it doesn't, I don't think it's a problem inherent. Um, I think, I guess it depends what your intention is when you go mm-hmm. into your, to populate your dystopian universe, yeah. right? So like, if your intention is like, I'm going to write this book to show like how evil television is and how dumb everyone is becoming, mm. um, that's, you know, you've got a, a moral base. I think like when I went into this book, I had a slightly different kind of, um, I don't know, set of investigative points that I was using. So mm. one of them was like, okay, so what if um, environmental catastrophe and climate change doesn't change the world, doesn't make us um, change radically in one way? What if like what I see to be like the neoliberal future just kind of swallows it up and uses it to tighten control on populations and all of this kind of stuff. So kind of combining those was part of what I was doing there. Mm. Um, Mm. And some other stuff was about 
spectacle and how we engage with um, the image, essentially, and the ethics of certain kinds of images. So those are the two things. Well, and then also memory and how our memories are affected by um, the way that we engage with media. So, mm. okay, so three mm. things. And mm. there's lots of other little things that I'm exploring, but those are kind of the main things that I was coming back to. And I actually don't have like a moral answer to mm. those questions, right? I I couldn't say this yeah. is the answer because yeah. I don't I don't know. Just more yeah. like exploring issues rather yeah. than yeah. 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 Asking questions. Yeah, yeah, and I just knew that I wanted didn't want to do a few things. Like, I, as I said, I didn't want to have that kaboom start from scratch moment and I didn't want to have, like, ah, hope yeah. at the end, you know? <laughs> like, I really didn't want to do that yeah. because I feel like, and this is a criticism of dy- dystopias and of um, apocalyptic fiction that is, like, an academic criticism, right? Which is that um, we go into the world, we see all the bad stuff, but then we see this kind of oversimplified resolution Um which allows us to feel fine about it. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to do that yeah. in my book. Yeah. There you go. Luke, <laughs> what do you think? About dystopian fiction? Yeah. Let's start right at the start. Actually, I, I was going to mention a, a quote or a tweet rather, because I saw, it was very funny. It was actually today, Michael Pryor sent out a retweet. Of course um, he did. Saying, on reflection, I preferred dystopian fiction when it was still fiction. Yeah. I saw that. I was like, oh, oh damn. Wow, that's right profound. The that's actually really good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's um, totally true though, right? Like this, the, mm. dystop- the dystopia that it feels like we're heading into is not subtle it's and not it's subtle, not, no. it's just like no. brutal and yeah. 60 style. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. It's happening with, yeah, yeah. we accept it. It's, it's all well, all yeah. the, the cameras on every corner, all that stuff. Yeah. It's, it's actually getting, it's just, it's like straight down the hill. It's not even mm. sort of, you know, a bumpy ride. It's just pff, yeah. <laughs> free fall into it. But um, yeah, I'd, I, for myself, a lot of the reason that I first got into dystopia and started writing it um, was, I think, I was I liked the idea of the grey, the idea that everything was colourless even though it was colourful. Mm-hmm. So, of course, I made it colourless in my book. But, um, but, you know, you look around and you see, like, even in a bookshop, you see beautiful colours everywhere and then... Um, and then the, there's the other view of it where it's, yeah, there might be pretty colours, but how much of it has real depth? I'm not just talking about a bookstore. I mean, that's obviously, there's some good books here. <laughs> <laughs> this was but actually much, a critique of <laughs> Brunswick Street Bookstore, really. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, like movies, anything, you, you go there, how much of it is actually really colourful and how much is just flat nothing mm. that is just just there to, I don't know, to waste our lives mm. away or or to to distract us or any of that so that was the stuff if you you take away the distractions of the modern world then you do see the gray and the dystopian right there Mm. and that's well that's for me anyways that's what i see so that's what drew me into it um but no i've read a couple of things about about this anyways and i came up with some more opinions Mm. Uh, i thought it was also like an affirmation of our own lives Mm. um so look, while while our life might be bad, oh, there's this, there, it could be worse, you know that kind of thing. <laughs> some You're people, still aligning it, some people, basically. Yeah, it's like you know, we're, we're doing okay. Yeah, <laughs> we could be worse. Um, yeah. Actually, it was curious because I uh, one thing that I read mentioned that um, 
I haven't followed all of the dystopian books that have come out. I don't only really know some of the more classics, mm, yeah, but um, so. and some of the the, more, the most famous recent ones like um, Hunger Games and all yeah. that. But um, uh, one thing was saying that after the Snowden leak, there were tons of more tons more stories and more popularity for this because obviously he's pointed out this a huge thing that's happening where it's it is becoming dystopian quicker than people realized. And so that's that's another reason that it's pop- picked up in popularity. Mm. But um, uh, so that's more again. It's it's like this is actually close to home. Mm. <laughs> so reading about it, I mean, I thought maybe maybe some of the attraction is you know when you read a dystopian story, you'll also find someone who's willing to fight for it, fight for people, and fight for for the right thing. So you think at least it's like an affirmation of you know I'm not going to be alone. Mm. <laughs> Somebody else out there is going to care as well. So you think there's like a certain hopefulness within the fiction, right? Yeah, so certain hopefulness. Hopefully, I mean, some some books don't, mm. <laughs> but uh, some do. Yeah, um, it's yeah. In, it's interesting because you know that I guess that brings us to you know what you were mentioning about you know people wanting to consume this kind of media after mm. the, you know stuff like WikiLeaks and and Snowden and all this stuff. Um, it's interesting because do you think that's what the appeal is? Do you think there's, what do you think the appeal of a dystopian piece of fiction is? Yeah, I think we like to see those aspects of that we already see exaggerated, and we like to, I think that there is pleasure in pursuing them um, as far as we can. Mm. That said, I think that there's, I think that the dystopian genre has kind of become bifurcated in some ways, and I think that like what the two concerns that you just outlined, like the one of like, oh, at least it's not that bad. Like, yeah. that's a real thing in dystopia. And yeah. actually, I think, like, um, in terms Believing of... Believing hunger- that the world is a utopia? Well, <laughs> I've written about this before, and it's kind of sort of complicated to talk about. Mm-hmm. But, like, mm-hmm. for instance, in The Hunger Games, I haven't read the book, so I'm just going off the movies. But in The Hunger Games, it's like, here is a deeply dystopian setting, um, basically mirroring fascism. And the... the um, protagonist that we're all supposed to be for she's essentially fighting for the rights that the viewers already have right so like at the end of the movie we're like yay like she gets to go and have a baby or you know she gets to like bow out of political life in you know Mm. whatever that world is what Mm. is it called the zone or whatever um okay so like that like that's kind of that's a worrying trend to me because in a way i feel like it takes our um, impulse toward dissent and s- turns it back around into a celebration of the essential, like, I don't know, heteronormative capitalism that we're <laughs> inhabiting. So, yeah. like, I think that that's problematic. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that even some classic um, dystopias tend to do that. Like, they tend, their message in, in the end tends to be pretty conservative. Um, I don't think that dystopias have to do that. Uh, I think mm-hmm. that it definitely is not necessarily a convention, but a trend in that genre. But I think that we should be really aware of it when we're exploring dystopian worlds. Like, um, is this actually making a critique of our world or is it actually doing a kind of a perverse switch around where yeah. it's celebrating our worlds? That's a very good point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that, yeah. Yeah, it was interesting because, again, this is I mean, from... Hunger Games. <laughs> yeah, this is from what I've read of other people talking about the Hunger Games. Mm. Maybe one of these days I will read the book. Um, just so I can get a, a sense of basis of what I uh, what I'm saying, but it's it, it's interesting because people draw comparisons to the Hunger Games and saying it's a dystopian setting without a dystopian heart, like the world mm. itself. Um, we're meant to believe that um, Katniss Everdeen, I'm pretty sure that's that's yeah, right, yep. uh, is 
you know, she lives in a pretty terrible world and this place where kids are sent um, to basically die in this gladiatorial arena uh, in some ways. But then the, the curious switch that didn't quite click for me is the celebration of her as a as a uh, uh, as a hero um she's on tv you know she's given this high life and it's weird because to me in in a dystopian view of things why would a culture that wishes to ostracize these people and be like yeah you're not you're not one of us and then you know lift her up and be like yeah yeah you're yeah, totally, but they a totally manipulate her like that's Again. the yeah. kind of the Again, point it's yeah yeah it's and and the, if it is indeed that propaganda, it's weird because of her reaction to it, of her like, no, this is not what I want to be part of, and then I leave, and then, you know, I start the rebellion later on, I believe, in the books. No, uh, she's co-opted into the rebellion, and then she kind of gets on board with the rebellion, yeah. and then eventually she kind of turns her back on it because she just becomes, wants to, becomes yeah, she wants to move to the suburbs, really. yeah. essentially. So what do you think, do you think that the... That kind of, and again, this is this is a uh, young adult fiction uh, series of novels and, and movies, but it still applies to the basic rules of um, dystopian fiction. Do you think that is a piece of fiction that is dystopian at its heart, or do you think it's just using a dystopian? Yeah, I think it's canvas. dystopian. I just think that it's not dystopian in this in the I think classic sense I think, of what no, no, it is. I think it is classically dystopian. Right. But I think I don't think that the dystopia that it's painting is a dystopia of our, of Western capitalism. I feel like the dystopia is harking to something else and actually kind of vindicating Western capitalism. Right. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, like I think a, a lot of those early dystopias mm-hmm. as well and I've I think I keep thinking of Fahrenheit 451 just because I've read it again recently and mm. it's easy and it's quite conservative, you know, like yeah, he gets out of the city, they blow up the city and then he and a bunch of other dudes walk around memorizing like the great dead white men, you know, like yeah. that's, that's the deal that they're coming back to kind of principles about education and, and moral absolutes and stuff like that. So, you know, there, there is a deeply conservative streak in dystopias often because often dystopias mm. are nostalgic and they're yeah. mourning something, right? Yeah. Again, no not something that I wanted to do in my book, The yeah. Island Will Seek, which is not a nostalgic dystopia. Yeah. But yeah, like that's kind of what it's about. So I do think that, that those that those movies and books are dystopian. I just think that we as readers need to be um, critical, just mm. like we've become critical of the Marvel universe, right? It's the same kind of thing that's being um, kind of put up where, where actually the message is inherently quite conservative. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and it's worrying in the teen genres only because um, – you know, there's a lot of like wish fulfillment yeah, going yeah, on in is. that stuff where yeah. it's like, yeah, like she re- leads the revolution and then she gets on TV and two boys like her yeah. and like all, you know, all this stuff is going on. So it's quite seductive and like yeah. the divergence, divergence is like that too. And I don't know, like it's so seductive, but it's also subtly just like unsubtly just giving us yeah. these kind of messages. And there are other dystopias out there like, um, uh, uh, Bitch Planet, that comic book, Bitch Planet, which kind of emphasised collectivity instead of emphasising um, individuality in this um, really specific way. Like, essentially, a lot of the teen dystopias are all about individualism and pro-capitalism. Yeah. And that's bummer. <laughs> <laughs> Especially when mm. you look at how dystopian things are. Yeah, exactly. Um, Luke, what do you think? Where would you like to see dystopian fiction go? Or do, where, do you have problems with dystopian fiction as it is? Is it, there's the problem. I haven't read enough of it, yeah. like the new, newer stuff, to yeah. um, to pick that up. But I, I do know that. Um, uh, 
It's funny because what you were mentioning earlier about the Hunger Games having that at the start, but by the very end, it takes like a really darker turn, mm-hmm. much darker turn, and it like ends with everything kind of in, in flames and everybody that you kind of care about dead and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So it it almost turns it around there. It obviously doesn't forgive it for the for the first for the first books, but um, is I the def- ending yeah. in the books different to the ending in the movies of Hunger Games? I don't remember the ending in the movies. The, and I, and can, I spoil it? can I spoil it? No. <laughs> All right, spoiler <laughs> warning. Go for <laughs> it. Okay, so the ending in the movies is Katniss goes back to her district and yeah. has a baby with Peter. Is that the ending in the? Ooh. It's a hell of an ending. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't remember that. Yeah, um, it's like a really like so Vaseline lens like, shot, and they're yeah, like is that meant to be the happy daisy thing? chains? Yeah, it's a oh, happy thing. I mean, yeah. it's sad. Mm. It's really sad that her district got blown up, and that everyone's district. But you know, this is what I was saying about mm. the moment in Apocalypse Dystopia. A lot of yeah. these kind of genres where you blow everything up so you can start again, having learned what you've learned. The right? new Eden. Yeah. 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 Yeah, no, I, I wish I could remember that, but no, mm. I don't, don't recall. Maybe I need to read the last but chapter of Hunger Games. <laughs> Do you think, um, and and going to the going to your novel again um, for the final section of this uh, podcast, I guess when you are writing the novel, do you think at the end of it that you either realize something about the setting that you didn't previously know? Um, and I know this is a very interviewee kind of question, like, oh, what did you learn after the <laughs> end, uh, writing your book? But you know, in the sense of working with a dystopian universe, you know, and understanding the mechanics of it, and then writing this book, you know, at the end of it, what do you think? What do I think? Yeah. What have I learned about the universe yeah. by the time I wrote the end? Mm. Well, I'm definitely not going to spoil my own book. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I mean, in a sense, the characters in my novel are waiting for that apocalyptic moment because everything in the way we understand narrative tells them that there's a moment of change and then there's something after that. When I was originally writing the book, I was really determined to withhold any, any such moment from the Mm. narrative. And so I suppose what I learned was both about (laughs) the universe of the book and about the principles of not writing an incredibly boring novel, which is that something, you know, something has to happen that transforms um, people. However, like, it's not necessarily going to be a clean, clean slate mm. kind of thing. Mm. But, you know, have you guys seen adaptations? Yeah. <laughs> There's that moment where Nicolas Cage, the Nicolas Cage character, goes to the story workshop oh, thing yeah, and yeah, the guy's yeah, like, yeah, yeah. how can you say nothing ever happens yeah, in life? Every day a man <laughs> yeah. leaves, you know, for his, for his best friend's wife or whatever, all yep. this kind of stuff. It was kind of a bit of one of those moments in yeah. the world. It's like... Um, even in a threshold kind of moment world, things are happening all the time. And the important thing was that my main character connected to the actual things that were happening rather mm. than looking for this kind of big spectacle sort of event. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, interesting when you say change, because was that a thing that you got like right at the start of the book? And you know how, you know, when they said like characters must change. And But there's also the other side of the argument where it's like if a character doesn't change, then that usually ends up to be a tragedy, right? Like the, a character's yeah. failure to change results in a destruction of that person's, you know, whatever, right? Soul, body, or just his state of being. So like, was that what you were going in? And if you were to end, if somebody were to read this book, would they think of it as a tragedy at the end? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think like it's not, yeah, I guess it's sad. I think, like, yeah, but I don't think it's it's a tragedy. So it's a melancholic ending. Though. Yeah, yeah. All right, there you go. 
Luke, final comments about dystopia. Do you think you'll write it it again? (laughs) Do you think you'll write it again? Of course. Into it still? (laughs) Yeah, of course. I'll always have some kind of dystopia in my writing. Mm. Whether, even if it's medieval, hell, I'll I'll still be, (laughs) there'll be some kind of dystopia in there. Uh, There's actually a very good um, example that I can't think of the name of. It's so annoying. It's an Australian series. uh, Dystopian set in Australia. Gosh, uh, it was like 10 books long. About this thick each. Young adult. What is it called? Wish I could remember it. Is it older? Was it not? It's not only like, you know, 10 years oldish. Like almost. tomorrow when the war began. That's or the something. one. Yeah. That was punchy. Yeah. Every single book, I'm like, <gasps> that person just died. Mm. And uh, like, you, it, it, it never, it, it doesn't hold the punches. It always yeah. pulls them. And mm. that's unlike, um, unlike Hunger I mean, Games, it doesn't pull the punches. It was more lenient. Mm. It was like, it was really brutal. Yeah. Mm. And that was, that was good. That was well done. I don't. I don't think I ever finished the last book because I don't. It's been like, like eight years or something since I read that. But <laughs> yeah, I know that. Finished, but that was yeah. one of those great dystopians that pushed me into actually loving dystopia. Mm-hmm. But they need to be darker. They need to be darker, and they need to have like less flowers. <laughs> 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 they need to be more punchy. Have more. Um, just that doesn't sound very good, does it? When I say just like that. Hmm. All the big silences. <laughs> Look, we we see you be, contemplate. I, I th- there's only like one word going through my head. It's darker, and it's not really the word I want going through my head. Because that has a different <laughs> connotation, I suppose, to most people. Like, it's curious, yeah. and and I guess in my final comments, the the dystopian world is something that I've always been interested in. Never really wrote because I've never had the courage to like push through and really dig into the concepts that are in it i think again just we've talked about this on podcasts before but like understanding the core concepts of a of a setting or a genre is really important to to writing uh, in that world um it's interesting because 1984 handmaid's tale those two books i i i like quite a lot for very different reasons for both because they are very different books and the and the examples and the things that are brought up within them are very different um but there are elements of 1984's ending is a is a thing that always that has always interested me even till today it's that kind of ending that when i first read the book and i was quite young when i read this i didn't get it like i didn't get why the ending worked in that way and as i got older i understood you know the political concepts behind the book mm-hmm. and i got it and now when i read that book again that still has something because again you know like that tweet it, the fiction is is no longer fiction right so there's a sense where 1984 captures an essence of you know forecasting mm. doom but i think the interesting thing is um i don't look i don't like dystopian fiction that is paranoid if that makes sense um i like dystopian fiction that asks questions like mm. you said but doesn't seek to push an agenda on you that doesn't seem to be like yeah but like this is what you're doing, eh? Mm-hmm. Like, this is a problem in society. Because when it gets to that point, it gets to be more of a lecture than it gets to be a piece of fiction. And in the end, fiction is meant to be enlightening, questioning, and, you know, ob- observational of the world around yes. us. So, dystopia. It's a it's an interesting thing, and we'll see where it goes. I think there will be different branches of it, certainly. And I feel like, um, just like usual, young adult fiction will be like the potent mix that we get to see the superficial layers of what the setting is and then within above it we see what those elements 
translate into if that makes sense mm. or if i've just said a bunch of words that don't make any sense together um just, but just no- nod just yeah nod. just just <laughs> nod and accept what i'm saying but uh but yeah it's curious and and we'll see what we think of it but as to what dystopian fiction you can read right now you can read <laughs> the island will sink by a certain brownie dog <laughs> <laughs> hella segue um but that's it for us um brownie if you have any Social media links where people can find you. Where can people buy the book? Uh, I am on Twitter as my name. People can buy the book uh, "The Island Will Sink" um, at most bookstores and also online from the Lifted Brow. Yep. Fantastic. And any projects you have coming up? Yep. So I've got another book, a nonfiction book, out in June next year called "Adult Fantasy." Watch out for it. Fantastic. Uh, Luke, where can people find you? What have you got coming up for us? At the Soul Shard. I'm always there typing random stuff that you'll probably ignore. Yeah. Um, but I'm, as I said earlier, I'm writing again, so that's exciting. And I'm hoping to put that, if I don't put it out as a full book, I'll put it in like um, installments on my mm-hmm. on my page probably. Fantastic. Uh, you can find the podcast archives, themorningbell.com.au and other good stuff there. Um, we have one more podcast, which is in two weeks, and then we're calling it for this year. And we'll be back again next year. Um, but since this is uh, one of our last podcasts, again, I'll spruce it. Send us an email. Contact us. Tell us what you think, what you'd like to see next year going forward. Hopefully, we'll have some improvements on the site. There'll be a new photo probably with us. Uh, it'll be a bit more descriptive of what, who we are and what we do. And uh, as always, you can find me at the Pen of Joel on Twitter. Thepenofjoel.com is my website where I haven't posted anything just yet. But um, yes, fantastic. We'll see you on the last podcast of the year in two weeks. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.